I was giving a lot of speeches and I really liked going out and, and liberating my soul instead of running a company with a lot of people in it, that I could go out and be the thought leader that helps inspire other people to think about how to operate differently in their companies. Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelly Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. Hello, hello, Rebel Soul fam. Welcome back to the Rebel Souls podcast. Brace your badass selves for this episode. I have the ultimate Rebel Soul. Seriously, everything this guy has done reads like the true rebel resume. He has disrupted everything in the hospitality industry, and he is now disrupting our concept of aging to make it aspirational. This is what he's rebelling for, midlife metamorphosis. And it's so cool to listen to him talk about it. He's got so much credibility because listen to this. He founded the Joie de Vivre Boutique Hotel Hospitality Group when he was 25 years old, built it into an empire, the second largest boutique hotel group in the country by the time he was 50, sold it off, was then tapped on the shoulder by Brian Chesky, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, you know, that little tiny company that maybe you've heard of, and went on first to advise and then to join them full-time as the global head of hospitality and strategy and help them create the global hospitality brand that today is Airbnb that I know I know and love and stay I use frequently in my travels around the world. And as he was there as a 50-something in this super young, hot startup tech company with founders who were in their early 30s at the time, he talks about what it was like to bring the wisdom and the experience that he had from the industry, but not yet understand or know the tech space or the digital space at all. And ultimately, Joe Gebbia, one of the other co-founders of Airbnb, coined this phrase for Chip called the modern elder. And so in this conversation, a lot of what we explore is, what does it mean to be a modern elder? And we talk about these midlife transitions that never even used to exist before when life was learn, earn, retire. And now with longevity, we're looking to figure out how to live a life that is as deep and meaningful as it is long. And we need these pit stops or these transitions to kind of refresh ourselves, reinvent ourselves, evolve ourselves. And yet we aren't taught how to do that. So Chip used this time at Airbnb and beyond to explore this concept, to write a book about it called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, and to ultimately start the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school. And by the way, this isn't the first book Chip has written. This guy, he's such a good writer, you guys. This is, I think, his fifth book and his first one, or his, one of his first ones is called The Rebel Rules. 
which of course is like one of my favorites. But wisdom at work is powerful. It's about the wisdom and curiosity and what we can do with the second half of our lives. And there's so much goodness and practicality in what we talk about. And just, you know, Chip shares his soul and what he's gone through on this journey and how he continues to reinvent himself as somebody who's learning surfing and Spanish in his late 50s. So buckle up and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chip Conley. Before we begin, I want to share an offering from my soul to yours. If you've achieved traditional success only to realize that you're living someone else's dream, then this will start you on a profound journey toward becoming chief soul officer of your own life, just like I did. I'm gifting you a free chapter from my book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. It's called Liberating from the Shackles of Should. And if you're ready to, then visit soulbatical.com to download it for free. That's S-O-U-L-B-B-A-T-I-C-A-L.com. Warning, side effects include intense joy and fulfillment. Hello, Rebel Souls. Welcome back for a conversation that I have been dying to have with Chip Conley. Chip and I were introduced recently by a mutual friend, and I had one of those like full body, hell yes, how quickly can I talk to this guy experiences. And when I did, I found an absolute soul brother, just somebody who's out there in the world being a rebel soul who has an awfully impressive rebel resume, I have to say. And I, Chip, I'm so excited to have you with me for this conversation to dive in a little deeper. Thank you, Shelly. You and I definitely were separated at birth, even though I am vastly older than you. <laughs> uh, vastly is an overstatement. I just want to correct you there. We're, we're both, we both have a five in front of our, in front of our. But I'll, uh, have a, I'll have a six soon. So. <laughs> you'll have a six soon, but you know what? What we are in soul and spirit is so different. And I love that. This is your whole mission of like, you're sort of reimagining aging, right? So people yeah. aspire to age. And this is, so this is kind of a perfect segue way into our conversation. Let me ask you this. So what I've decided to do in this podcast, because we are rebels, I'm taking my signature question and I'm putting it at the beginning. Most people end with their question and I want to start and then unpack the answer. It makes so, so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course it does, fellow rebel. <laughs> right? I would not expect you to disagree with that. So here's the question. What are you rebelling for? It's a great, it's a great question. First of all, Shelley, I, I, I just love your framing of this whole premise, the idea of rebelling. I, you know, it, this is an easy answer to, as well, because there's an awful lot talked about when it comes to ageism and what, when it comes to discrimination and et cetera, et cetera, around people with a, who have age on both sides, but frankly, younger and older. Sometimes the age discrimination is against young people where I tend to spend a lot of my time in Silicon Valley, it's the opposite. So I don't really like becoming a sort of like rattle my saber. It's all about ageism. I actually prefer talking about how we make aging aspirational. So I'm rebelling for the idea that we need to take society's narrative on aging and match it with the personal narrative on aging. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, the personal narrative on aging is terrible. After 50, everybody's 
not happy anymore. And actually, social science proves quite the opposite. In fact, the U-curve of happiness, which is pretty famous now, the U-curve of happiness shows that people have a decline in happiness from about age 22, 25 till about right, age 45 to 50. They bottom out between age 45 and 50. And then each decade after that, they get happier again. And frankly, women in their 80s are happier than 70s. Men tend to top out in their happiness in their 70s. And it's, it's, it has a little bit to do with you get closer to, to death, the happiness starts to plateau or go down. But long story short is my, what I'm rebelling for is to help people to realize that aging is making a comeback. <laughs> yes, I love it. And listening to one of, I think it's, you've done multiple TED Talks, haven't you? Yes. So listening to one of them, and you're good at it, right? I I loved, I picked up on this phrase, midlife metamorphosis. Mm, And I was like, yes. And so that's another way of saying exactly what you just described, right? Yeah, mm, mm, good. MM, I like anything, MM, midlife metamorphosis. We've also called it the midlife calling. It's not a midlife crisis, it's a midlife calling. What's so curious is that the premise of midlife, now midlife has a lot of, it's a mashup. It's not just a metamorphosis, it's a mashup. And Brene Brown has talked about the fact that it is a midlife unraveling. And what the premise is this, is that you go through your life and around 45 to 50, it's not so much a crisis, although that can happen. Certainly in the times we're in right now, circumstances of the world today, a lot of people are going through crisis. But what it is is more an element of, you just need to shed a lot of what you have. The first half of your life is about accumulating, and the second half of your life is about editing. And so that metamorphosis that goes on around midlife is the opportunity to let go of what is no longer serving you. Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, said, you can't live the afternoon of, the life based, of your life based upon the rules of the morning. And what he was really saying was, while you're the same person What's important to you and your ability to be discerning about how you make decisions about what you're doing in your life becomes better around midlife because, frankly, you come to realize that if midlife is a marathon, which it is another MM. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) If midlife is a marathon, then you better not be carrying a lot of extra baggage. And so it's around mid-40s that people start to realize, I need to... To be, I need to do have my great midlife edit, which is what we call it here at the Modern Elder Academy, which we'll talk about. The great midlife edit is something that none of us has been, have been taught. No one was taught like, okay, you've got to edit in midlife, and then you actually get better at determining how you want to live your life moving forward. But we've been really bad as a society about helping people understand what midlife is. I'm actually say one last thing and then I'm going to shut up. There are three life stages that got introduced in the in the. 20th I was century. just going to go there. I'm so excited that you did. We're like mind meld. Oh, another MM mind MM. meld. We're just it, we, we like M and M's. I do like my 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 red M and M's. There you so. go. Mine are orange. So oh, okay, there you go. Okay. Everything in my house is orange. So I want the orange <laughs> orange ones when I come down to the Baja, please. Uh, perfect. <laughs> we'll work on that as long as they're not melted. The, the thing is, there are three life stages that, that actually got introduced in the 20th century. The first one was adolescence. And it wasn't that we didn't have adolescence before, but we didn't have a word for it until 1904. And prior, prior to 1904, we basically thought you're an adult when you hit puberty, which is why you got married at 15 and had a baby at 16 and you worked yeah. in the mines or the factories and before you're 18. So that adolescence, the premise of adolescence led to no more you know, children, basically children labor laws, but also public junior and senior high schools. Okay, good. Then we had retirement. 
Retirement actually was a sort of a 1930s phenomena. The, de- the depression accelerated it because it got the old people out of the workforce, but also it helped to create pensions and social security as a way of providing a safety net for people later in life. Have we gotten, has AARP made sure that we are doing great funding, public policy for people who are older? Yes. But adolescence and retirement have gotten a lot of attention. Midlife, there is no midlife group that's out there supporting and trying to make sure that government policy and funding is supporting midlife. And so we're early in this process of helping people to understand midlife. The midlife crisis as a term was created in 1965. And, and frankly, you know, midlife is a new idea because at, in the year 1900, longevity in the U.S. was 47. And by the year 2000, it was 77. So we, had, we added 30 years of life in one century. But we didn't do a lot in helping people to understand how to make sense of midlife. You have a line that I love. I think you have it in the book and I heard you say it somewhere else too. Life isn't a one tank journey. Yes. And I was like, what a brilliant way of summarizing the fact that those three phases of life that used to exist, used to be traditional and standard, boom, they've exploded because our longevity is what it is, right? Exactly. You know, the, the, the premise of the one, light, one, one tank journey was this. You fueled up during your high school, college, and maybe even graduate school era, and then you have your vehicle, your body, and you, you just point that vehicle in the right direction and you, you play the game of life. I don't know if you ever played the game of life when you were a kid, Shelly. Yeah, we're probably showing our ages now. <laughs> exactly. The game of life basically was one path. There was a singular path through life. And, you know, you got points if, you know, if you got married and if you got the job and if you got the, you know, the, the bonus or the, and then ultimately the gold watch at age 65. It was a very linear life. And so, but you fueled up for that journey before that you were the age of 25. And you wondered why people in their 40s and 50s were like running on fumes. Although, Shelley, your mileage may vary. <laughs> right. <laughs> Brilliant. I, the thing that's curious to me is that how, you know, there, for about 30 or 40 years, there has been a premise of lifelong learning. So this idea of lifelong learning is not new, but it's been sort of a slogan and a DIY thing. Do it yourself. Like, where, does, where do you find lifelong learning? I, I don't know. So our premise here is that I believe that it's not so much just about lifelong learning and how do you fuel up in midlife and do a midlife pit stop, but it is about long life learning. Ooh, and long life that. learning is the premise that if you're going to live longer than your parents, which is pretty likely, how do you make sure you live a, a life that is as deep and meaningful as it is long? And we don't have much for that. And lifelong learning, literally, the way it's structured in the world is if you're 25 or you're 65, you get the same MOOC online course. It's not actually developed with the mindset of, okay, this person's in midlife or later. Um, how do you actually teach you know, coaching? Yeah. Teaching coaching to a 25-year-old would be different than teaching coaching to a 65-year-old. Yeah. And I love, this is where, well, one of the many places where Soulbatical, some of the work that I've done so far and the journey I've been on really beautifully intersects with the work you're now doing in the world. But I want to take a giant step back so we can reset because I think a lot of people know you as the rebel boutique hotelier, right? The founder of Joie de Vivre Hotel Group, which really revolutionized what it was like to stay in these incredible boutique hotels. And you grew that to what? The second largest boutique hotel group? Second largest in the US. 
We had 52 of them. And now it's owned by Hyatt. Yeah. So I started when yeah. I was 26. Yeah. Tell us that story because I want, yeah. I, want, I want to talk about the journey from Rebel Boutique Hotelier to Rebel Modern Elder. <laughs> and what were like some of those defining points? Because you've disrupted the hospitality industry twice yeah. and now you're disrupting this idea of aging. aging. So you are yeah. like rebel spirit through and through. And I just want to talk about a little bit about yeah. what was that journey for you? So the journey was I, I went to Stanford undergrad and went to Stanford Business School. I was very young. I started Stanford Business School when I was 21. I finished when Ooh. I was 23. And I wanted to work in real estate, commercial real estate uh, development. I went to work for a real estate developer in San Francisco afterwards, and I was bored about a year into it. And I felt like commercial real estate development was all about, it was basically a win-lose kind of scenario where you, you negotiated hard for the office leases we were doing. And I just was bored and I felt like it was one big you know, wrestling match. And so I, what I wanted to do was something that just felt like it was a little bit more enriching, that felt like it was like I was making a difference for, in people's lives. So a form of real estate that started to appeal to me was hotels. And I, could, I was seeing that at age 24 and 25, I had tons of friends coming and staying on my couch and they weren't staying in hotels. And I, so I'd like had a focus group of one each time someone would come visit me, like, why aren't you staying in a hotel? I was like, oh, they're all expensive and they're boring. And so uh, in 1985, 86, I started studying the hotel industry more, more significantly. And I, I saw that Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton had just really started their, the two first boutique hotel companies in the US. So in 86, I, I, I wrote a business plan and, and at age, on my 26th birthday, I finished the business plan. And two months later, I owned a no-tell motel in the a bad neighborhood in San Francisco called That's the right, Tenderloin. It was the Tenderloin, yes. Yeah, really <laughs> tough neighborhood. Still 34 years later, a tough neighborhood. And it became the Phoenix Hotel, a rock and roll hotel. And it, it be, overnight became a pretty big time success um, against all odds. And over the course of the next 24 years, I was CEO of this company I founded, grew it, grew it to 3,500 employees and 52 hotels, all in California. So if you've never heard of me and you're in the Midwest or the East Coast, not surprising. Now, Joie de Vivre has, has a hotel in Beijing and a hotel, a couple, one or two hotels in Chicago. And, but back then, I, I, my whole premise was, let's have all of these hotels in California. And California will sort of define the brand because each of our hotels was very different, very unique and, and personalized to the place in which it was located within California. And you know, I told you Hotel Vitale was my yes. place. That was my home away from home in San Francisco. Man, I love that. To this day, I love that place. Well, it's interesting. So, I, so the way, and you, because you're a marketing person, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about this. Sometimes I don't bring it up, but the thing that was curious to me is that boutique hotels are meant to be different than chain hotels, of course. But what I saw from Kimpton was Kimpton was doing sort of the same, Palomar, Monaco, sort of the same thing over and over again. And, and they're nice hotels, but they're sort of business class four-star hotels. Schrager was doing these like hotels, boutique hotels as nightclubs. And, yeah. and it was all about being hip. So I, I wanted each of our hotels to be an absolute original, like a piece of art. So the way we created our hotels was each hotel was based upon a different magazine and five adjectives. And so the first hotel, the Phoenix, the Rock and Roll Hotel, was based upon Rolling Stone magazine. We came up with five adjectives that defined Rolling Stone. Funky, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. And everything we did in creating that hotel, including the staff we hired who had to fit those adjectives, the kind of restaurant we created, the kind of design, et cetera, came back to that. And what we found after about a year being open is the people who fell in love with the hotel were people who would use those five adjectives to describe themselves. And yes. so that was interesting. So we were creating, we weren't just in the boutique hotel business, we were in the identity refreshment business because we started to believe you are where you sleep, not you are what you eat. 
although that may be true too. And in our hotel, you are who you sleep with as well. But I'm not, yeah. not going to go there. I'm not going to tell any <laughs> that stories. That had to start at the Phoenix, right? <laughs> in a rock and roll hotel, you can see some really groupy, wacky things about all you know how groupies hang out. In no doubt. But long story short is the Vitali was a hotel that we built, the one that you love. And it was real simple meets dwell. And the five adjectives were modern, urbane, fresh, natural, and nurturing. And the hotel's premise was really for business women because most hotels felt very much like they were like almost like a, I don't know, wood paneled gentleman's club or something yeah. with cigar bars. And, and, and not to say that women don't want cigar bars, but I thought, okay, well, may, what if women, if, if we're going to be modern, urbane, fresh, natural, and nurturing, what if we had a yoga studio in the hotel? And so on the penthouse level, we had for 10 years, for the first 10 years, the hotel was open. We had a free yoga studio with an hour yoga class every morning. And no financial district hotel in any market in the world had ever actually created a hotel with a yoga studio at the penthouse level. And my investors in that hotel said, you are too much of a rebel. That's a stupid idea. People go to spas to do yoga. This is 20 years ago. People go to spas to do yoga. They don't go to a financial district hotel. And I said, listen, I think they do. And then 9-11 came along. And, uh, and we weren't open yet, but we were just concepting the hotel. And 11 came along and everybody, the experience of traveling became painful. And you're all cramped in, you know, in, in going through security. And, and by the time you actually did your business trip, you got to the place you wanted to go, you needed something to just like mellow you out and relax yes. you, and especially before going out and doing a full working day. So long story short, that was one of a, a handful of things we did in that hotel that made it sort of the signature qualities of that property. And signature qualities are what create a boutique hotel that's got a soul. And so this is a soul, a rebel soul thing, just like my friend Liz Lambert, we talked yes, about this. That yes, in Austin. 20 years ago, I helped her get in the hotel business and she's got a hotel in Austin that actually has soul in, in neon at the end of the pool. So at nighttime, it's a beautiful glowing a neon sign, you know, it mirrored in the pool. A long story short is I just believe that if people want predictability, they've got so many choices. They've got the Marriott's and the Holiday Inns of the world. But if you want something that's actually almost like a mirror for your aspirational self, you're going to choose a boutique hotel. And for me, it was a lot more fun creating 52 different ones yeah. as opposed to saying, okay, as Schrager did, let's do three Mondrians or Kimpton said, let's do 10 Monaco's. And those are great hotels. I actually love both those hotels. But if you, you know, if you ask Pablo Picasso if he was going to start going printmaking or, or photocopying his, you know, Xeroxing his, his artwork, he'd look at you like, what? And it wasn't me just as the sort of, you know, the artist here. It was me and my team. And it was just a great process. And I loved it until I hated it. And, and, and that's why I had to sell the company when I finally realized I'd done it for, I did it for 24 years, but the last two were a real brutal experience. I didn't want to do it anymore. I want to talk about that moment too. By the way, this yeah. idea of identity refreshment, and I've heard you talk about your process of getting into like, what business are you really in? What business are you really in? And asking the whys. And I think that's really a really powerful takeaway for people. So maybe, can you just talk about that for a second? Because yeah. then I want to get into like yes. the defining moment of why you were like, I had to get out of this business and what has, you know, propelled you into the modern elder that you are now. But Thank you. that, that yep. why is powerful. The exercise I started doing it at Joie de Vivre, which helped us to arrive at the fact that we were in the identity refreshment business. It also helped me at Airbnb, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, yeah. about the fact that when I joined them, I helped them to see that they're in the belong anywhere business, is the following exercise. Any, anybody can do it. Put two people in front of each other, and the first person asks the second person, what business are we in? 
or if they don't work together, what business are you in? And the, the person who's being asked the question answers it. Uh, in the case of Joie de Vivre, it was we're in the boutique hotel business. And then my partner would say, thank you, and ask me the question again, what business are we in? And I, ha- I can't answer the same way twice. <laughs> this goes on five times. So by the time you get to your fifth answer, you've done a bit of an archaeological dig, dig to understand your differentiator or your essence, what it is that makes the company different. And so that, that process is something, you know, Harley Davidson could do it. I mean, you know, yes. it would be Harley Davidson and Harley Davidson and Southwest Airlines would probably come to something similar. Like about, it's about freedom on some it level. It is freedom. Yeah. It, that's exactly how we spoke about the business. Exactly. Yes. Both of them are, both of them have that kind of archetype. It's the, the rebel archetype, which freedom is, you know, I mean, and so we've done archetype work as well. So I, I am this weird person who I was once introduced going on stage. Chip Conley is the crossing guard at the dangerous intersection of psychology and business. <laughs> oh my God, that's I brilliant. That. I love that. But it is true. I, I find psychology, whether it's archetypes or identity refreshments or personality types in terms of understanding leaders. I find all of this really fascinating because I think the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human and we keep forgetting that. Yes. Well, and you also, that, that fascination reflects in language that you use because one of the things I like the most in reading your work and especially reading wisdom at work is like you create language, you mesh words. And as somebody who created Soulbatical and Chief Soul Officer and all these things, and frankly, I don't call myself a coach. That's one piece of my business, but I call myself a liberator of souls. That to mm, me is what you get I to after it. the five whys. That's it. Right? Exactly. There's, I just, I want everybody to kind of take that away and say, how do you apply that? Whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're sitting in a company right now, like yeah. this is where disruption comes from. Yeah. So I love that that archaeological dig yeah. is powerful. Well, and, and let's move to the next because how did yeah. I liberate my soul? I had to liberate my soul at age 47. I, wow, I love, you know, I think we can have one of three relationships with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. And for 22 of my 24 years of being CEO of my company, Joie de Vivre, it was a calling. And then like overnight, it became a job. It didn't even go to career. <laughs> it just went straight down. Gravity took it down to job. And, and there were a lot of reasons for that. We were going in the early days of the Great Recession. And I'd been through the dot-com bus in 9-11. And I actually, our company did pretty well through that, that, that bad last downturn. But the Great Recession was going to be punishing, and I could see it. My heart wasn't in it like it used to be. I had also written my third book, The Prior Year Peak, and it became a big you know, bestseller and a very successful book. And I was giving a lot of speeches. And I really liked going out and, and liberating my soul instead of running a company with a lot of people in it, that I could go out and be the thought leader that helps inspire other people to think about how to operate differently in their companies. Additionally, I was having a relationship fall apart. I had a foster son who was, you know, potentially, it was an adult who was potentially going to prison wrongfully. I had a flatline experience where my, I, my heart stopped and, uh, in St. Louis and I, I died and I, I, after I gave a speech. That it was not a heart attack. It was, it was on an antibiotic and I had a, an allergic reaction. Oh my God. So all that mashup came together at age 47. At that time, I didn't know anything about the U-curve of happiness. It hadn't really been popularized yet. And I was like, okay, right in the middle of my late 40s, it happened. And so I had to go through a, a two-year period during the Great Recession where I was trying to figure out how to sell a company that wasn't worth much anymore. I was just selling the management company and the brand, so none of the real estate that, that I owned in the hotels, I was going to keep the real estate. So long story short is I, 
I knew I needed to do it because I, I didn't want to have the same experience that I, I saw a few friends go through who actually literally got to the place where they committed suicide because they just mm. didn't like their identity anymore. And when I say they didn't like their identity, it wasn't necessarily just who they were. It was the role they had and their, their sense of self-esteem was so aligned with their company or their role in that company. We get shackled to those identities and those titles. Yeah. We do. It helped me to see that I really needed to take off that identity. And so when I, two years, it was actually 10 years ago this month that I sold the company. And as I said earlier, it's now a Hyatt company, smaller than it used to be, interestingly though. And I knew that I just needed that liberation. And, you know, there's a great film. I, it's a, not a great film, but it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great film. It's like, you know, oh, it's going to be win an Oscar. The <laughs> movie is just entertaining. The Intern with Robert De Niro oh, and Anna love. Yes. No one I know, whenever I say that, it's like, ah, you know what? Love that movie. Robert De Niro in that movie says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And so I knew I had music inside of me, but I wasn't really sure whom, with whom to share it. And so in the, over the next couple of years, I, I wrote a, a book called Emotional Equations and I, I, to try to understand my emotions a little bit more. And I, and I started a company called Fest 300, focusing on the world's best festivals. Very rebel idea of like, okay, I, I just wanted to go around the world to the world's best festivals and say, okay, here's a this list. This is of my the, life. <laughs> the, yeah, we'd have a list of the 300 best festivals every year, just like there was a Fortune 500 and a Forbes 400, and there's a Fest 300. But that's about the time that Brian Chesky tapped me on the shoulder, and he was the co-founder and CEO, young, very 31-year-old CEO of Airbnb at that time. And he said, we want to democratize hospitality. We're just a little tech company here in San Francisco. We don't know anything about the hospitality business or travel. And I'd like to have you come in, come and be my in-house mentor, but you'll also be reporting to me as the head of global hospitality and strategy. And I thought it was going to be a 15-hour-a-week job, and it turns out it was a 15-hour-a-day job. And I spent four years helping steer the rocket ship with three founders. And then I've spent three and a half years as a continuing mentor to Brian, but also a continuing advisor, strategic advisor to them. But it absolutely forced me to change identities because I was no longer CEO of this company. I was now like the guy behind the scenes, not, no longer the sage on the stage, but instead the guide on the side. I love that. I, I was no longer the person who had my ego fully invested in the company. I mean, I really cared about the company a lot and my the founders, but I, I no longer lived and breathed the company like I did before. I, but I actually felt this strong sense of legacy that my role was to help these three founders to be successful. And I had to learn tech. I was 52 years old at the time. I had to learn a tech business sold my company at age 50. And I was like, okay, I have to learn tech now. And it was really hard because the first month I didn't understand the lingo. I didn't understand even some of the logic of how do you create a product, a software product that is sticky. Um, and you know, how do we spend money on this versus that? And wow. So I had to actually at times be as much the intern as I was the mentor. And that's why we coined the term mentor. I love that. Um, which was the idea that Brian and I were mutually mentoring each other. I was helping him with EQ and leadership and EQ being emotional intelligence, but he was helping with, me with DQ, digital intelligence, and we were both better off for it. And that ultimately, ultimately led Joe Gebbia, another one of the co-founders, to coining the term modern elder. Chip, you are our modern elder. You are as curious as you are wise. And that, so the difference being the traditional elder was regarded with reverence. And because they were the, they were, you know, there was a stature you had as the traditional elder and, and power basically was owned by older people. And so the 
the modern elder is not about power because frankly, you know, we're living in an era where we're living longer, but power is moving younger. But the, the difference is that the, a modern elder is somebody who is not about reverence, it's about relevance. And in order to be relevant, you better be as curious as you are wise because you need to actually how to know how to take some of that wisdom you have and apply it within the context of where it's needed. So if I had just gone into Airbnb and said, here's how the hospitality you know, business works, but wasn't curious about how tech works, then they would have looked at me and said, like, we don't really need to know how many rooms a maid cleans in, in an eight-hour shift, Chip. Because <laughs> that's not very relevant to the home sharing business, even though it's in the same industry as hotels. And so I really had to be a, a fast learner. And I had to be humble enough to admit what I didn't know. And that actually was a really liberating. Speaking of liberating, you know, we tend to be, live our lives as if we know it all. And of course, nobody knows it all. And if you do, then it's time to die. So I, I just had this perspective that I am here to learn. And what it was beautiful was how much I was embraced by the millennials because they saw me as both a wise person that they could go to asking certain questions, but also somebody who, you know, the age of their parents was learning a new industry for the first time. Yeah, you have so many. So there's so much in that to unpack. I So I want to start with when I was reading your book, Wisdom at Work, which we'll talk about because this it's, it's literally the summary of this story, your journey with Airbnb and becoming this modern elder and then saying, okay, wait a second, what does it, who is a modern elder and what does it take to become a modern elder? And I want to dig into that deeper, but I want to point out use of wisdom and curiosity. And when I read that, in your book, I wrote down equals superpowers, like the combination of those two and then how you break down curiosity to say, you say curiosity is the elixir of life, which I just love. I'm like, I am putting that on a bumper sticker in my house. <laughs> like That's incredible. And you, you talk about how your experience at Airbnb was going back to adopting a beginner's mind. Yeah. And that's so powerful. Yeah. There's a, a Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck, and she's sort of famous. Oh, mindset. I love her. Yes. So what she was able to show is that you can have one of two kinds of mindsets, and you can have various different ones in different parts of your life. So if you have a fixed mindset, which a lot of us sometimes have, you're trying to prove yourself. You have a tendency to focus. Winning is defined, uh, succeeding is defined by winning. So you only like to play games that you can win. So that's a fixed mindset and you prove yourself when you win. A growth mindset is not about proving yourself. It's about improving yourself. And instead of winning, success being winning, it's success is learning. So what I had to do was to actually shift from this fixed mindset, because frankly, as you get older, if you have a fixed mindset, your sandbox gets smaller and smaller yes. because there are a lot of things. If you only do the things that you do well or that you can win at, there's things, especially physically, that you can't do as well with time. So you actually start limiting your, what you do and apply that to your mind or what you know or you know, how fast change is happening in the world. It's, why, it's the reason why a lot of people in midlife sort of bitter and, like, and closed-minded because they sort of feel like the world's passed them by. But, but they, it's partly that their mindset forced that because they had a fixed mindset. So I had to absolutely take that growth mindset point of view and have, have the point of view that, okay, with each passing week, I'm getting better. I'm improving. I'm actually getting better at this tech thing that I didn't know much about. So that was, a, you know, that's not easy because it does require you to look like an idiot at, at the start and even along the way. But it was also, again, it was the liberating 
feature of knowing that as the old person in the room, it didn't always mean that I had all the answers. In fact, quite often, my greatest value to the company was not my answers, it was my questions yes. in that very Socratic kind of way. Because a catalytic question that illuminates something that's been a blind spot for the company or for a leader is what a coach does, first of all. that A great coach does is, is, is spectacular at illuminating the path for someone to find out what they might already know, but they but was hidden hidden to, to them or hidden from them. I think wisdom is truly about helping take the unconscious and make it conscious. And so all of this was part of my role and realizing, ah, I don't have to have all the answers, but I could actually get really good at asking questions. And so one of the things I started studying was this thing called appreciative inquiry. And it's something that's taught a lot to coaches and taught, you know, in psychology. And, and so I was really good at asking the kind of questions that were catalytic and opened up possibilities. Yeah. Empowering questions is another way to say that, right? And as coaches, this is what we practice every day. And I would say, this is such a good point to take away for anybody who's listening or watching. Like, this is what helps open people up in life. This is what will illuminate possibility and paths forward. It is so powerful. In fact, I wrote that down. I was like, catalytic questions. I want Chip to talk about that. So what I, so here, I want to get deeper into this modern elder thing because- yeah. When I was reading the book, I wrote down, what's a modern elder? And then four things before I got into like, how do you become one, which I kind of want you to talk through those four phases of how you come on. But here's what I took away in terms of a modern elder. As you were sort of blossoming into one and being recognized as one, editor, which you've, which you've hit on, sculptor, mentor, and coach were the four things that I wrote down of like, okay, that starts to define or describe what is a modern elder. Is there anything you would add to that? Comedian. (laughs) (laughs) And and the reason I say that is because I actually think learning the perfect alchemy of gravitas and levity is part of what wisdom is about. And knowing when to dose up one versus the other, especially on a team or in a company environment. Because actually, we do tend to take ourselves pretty seriously as humans, especially in our, you know, our 30s and 40s. And knowing how to have a sense of humor, it's fascinating that the word humor and humanity and human all sort of sound alike. So I would just say that that's another quality. And, and one that I learned from my modern elder, the guy who's my COO, who became my president of Joie de Vivre, who is 15, 16 years my senior. He had, a, he had a wicked sense of humor, and I, I, I loved it. So yeah, I, I would say those are some of the, some of the, some of the qualities, some of the roles a person would have. I also think a confidant, and you know, here's, the, here's a, I, I, you'll read this in the book if you haven't gotten there yet. Oh, I finished it, Chip. I was like, oh my God, I blew through it. Okay, 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 got it. So, the, so there's a woman, a French woman on my, um, who was a, a direct reporter of mine. I was in charge of learning and development for the company too, which was like, Brian just kept throwing things on my plate. Chip, you're good at what you do. Take this one, take that one. <laughs> so, and she, what, she was 27 year old head of learning and development for the company. I was, I was her boss. And so, and she no, had no background in learning and development. And at some point, a few months into it, she said, you're my confidant. And I said to her, wow, Lisa, you haven't told me anything juicy yet. <laughs> And she said, no, and in France, when we, we say someone's a confidant, it means you're the one who gives me confidence. Oh, I love that. You're the one who gives me confidence. And so she said, you're my permissionary. You're the one who gives me permission, but you also help give me the roadmap for how to actually get, do it right. So I actually think that's part of what our role is as well, is to help be that confidant. 
I love, can I just chime in for a second? Cause I yeah, love that please. description. Cause as a coach, I always say like, it's our role to remind our clients of their superpowers and that they are superheroes and we help illuminate what that is. So I didn't even think about confidant in that, in that context. That's really, that's really beautiful. It is beautiful because it, 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 a confidant also does hear a lot and is, is a trusted resource, but, but it actually feels very passive. Whereas a confidant, a confidant who gives you confidence doesn't feel passive at all. No. The, you want me to go to the four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do, we, how do we become a modern elder? Yeah. Well, so in this book, The Wisdom, Wisdom or Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I tried to make sense. You know, I'm writing this book and I'm thinking like, what was my process? How did I, how did I become this thing, this person that they called the modern elder? What was, whether it was there like four steps and there were. The first step is called Evolve. And it was really about how do you, it's really about editing. It's learning how to say, okay, life is about evolution. You're constantly evolving. There's a great TED talk by Dan Gilbert, who basically showed a Harvard psychologist that people vastly underestimate how much change they're going to have in the next 10 years at every age, at age 20 and at age 80. And so evolving is just natural. There's a word called liminal. To be liminal is in, to be in between two stages. It's to be in transition. Adulthood is full of liminality, and yet we think that liminality ends when puberty ends. No, <laughs> you have, you're going to have a divorce potentially. You're going to change jobs. You're going to have menopause. And men will have andropause. Yet you're going to become an empty nester. Midlife is full. You're going to have these pit stops, right? Yes. You're going to have these pit stops. So, so you just know that evol- evolution or evolving is essential. Number two is once you've evolved, you actually have some space and you've done some editing to learn. And that's the second, the second step is to learn. And that, at, at Airbnb, I had to learn tech and I had to look like an idiot. That's where the beginner's mind came from. Thirdly is collaborate. The first two are the hardest two. And people sometimes mm-hmm. get stopped because evolving is hard. It means changing and learning can make you look stupid. And if you have a fixed mindset, you may not do it. But third, three and four are easier, but they come third and fourth. Collaborate is the third one. Basically, even the tech world, you know, we think of the tech, co- tech companies being all about just these individual engineers doing their thing. No, it's actually a bunch of teams. And Google studied this. Google was able to show with their project Aristotle that that the number number one quality that defined effective teams in Google was psychological safety. And that often happened from the people on the team who were really good at collaborating. And often that meant you had emotional intelligence. It also meant often you were older because you had the ability to modulate your emotions and you were not competitive with that 25-year-old across the table from you when you're 50 years old. You're not competing for the same jobs. So there was an element that collaboration and, and being able to sort of maximize a skill you have, you get better at collaboration as you age. On average, we know lots of people who don't, who that, doesn't, that doesn't fit for, but, but on average, you get better at it, just like EQ improves with age. And then finally, the fourth step is to counsel. While collaboration is a team sport, counsel is usually an individual sport. It's one-on-one. And that's where the mutual mentorship comes because, you know, someone can mentor you just as much as you can mentor them. But learning how to be a great counselor, someone who can actually provide counsel to someone, trusted counsel, is certainly what we most, frankly, most think of with a modern elder. But if you start with counsel first and you don't do those other three things first, you will get someone saying to you, if you're my age, okay, boomer. Because actually, if you go straight to counsel, you are that old person telling the young person, this is how the world works, and basically shoveling your advice at them um, at a time when they haven't even asked for it. Yeah. 
This, uh, I'm going to go back to evolve for a second. And that, that concept of liminality, because that's one of the things I wrote down. I'm like, you've got to dig into this because I love how you describe. There's a reason why people don't get past this first stage. Because being in that, you describe it as like that gooey state of transition, like you're the caterpillar inside the chrysalis. And I was like, yes, that's it. That's how I felt when I started my sabbatical journey. And a lot of people will be like, uh, no, thank you. Super uncomfortable. Don't need to do any more of this and just go back to what's familiar. But staying in that gooey place is where the growth comes from. Yeah. I mean, who knew? Who knew the caterpillar was going to become a butterfly? And I just, I, not every caterpillar to butterfly story is a perfect story either. Sometimes you end up in the gooey, the goo, and you're there for years. And, and maybe that wasn't the right liminal journey for you, and you need to find another mm. one. But I think the key, because I, they're, they're, we know lots of people who have stories, and they think it's going to be perfect, and it, it isn't, doesn't turn out perfect. And, but I think the key is to be able to sort of see what trajectory you're on. What is it that's most meaningful? What's your purpose? One of the things that's really interesting, more, a Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute has, has shown this, that the three qualities that are most important for people 50 and up are purpose, wellness, and community. And actually, purpose and community often come from people who the need for that comes from people, frankly, at a later stage in their career where they're either retiring or they're no longer feeling very relevant and they have lost their sense of purpose, and they've lost a sense of community. And that can happen, especially if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are younger than you. And wellness is often lost in 50s and older, especially in retirement. This is the part that's amazing. You retire, you have a lot of extra time, and you actually get less well. Why is that? It's because you lose your discipline. Work provided some kind of discipline, sort of a, a pragmatic pragmatism to how you kept your calendar. And so purpose community and wellness. These three qualities, I think, are really important for people to look at in their own life when they hit midlife and beyond. And it's part of what we focus on here at the Modern Elder Academy as well, partly because of our great work that we've learned from the people at Stanford DCI. So you, okay, this is the perfect segue, right? Because I wanted to dive into the Modern Elder Academy and yes. full disclosure for everybody listening and watching, I cannot wait to get down to the Baja and spend time with Chip at the Modern Elder Academy. So this is going to be as beneficial for me as it is for everybody who's listening. Yeah. So you go through this whole experience, you're acknowledged as it's Modern Elder at Airbnb. You spend what, like four years at Airbnb. You're kind of- Four years full time. Yep. Yeah, yep. four years full time. You write this book, Wisdom at Work, that's now capturing and kind of structuring all of these learnings. And then you're like, okay, what do I do next? So what was sort of that? How did you get into creating? Here's what happened. So first of all, I took offense when they first called me the modern elder because I thought they meant modern elderly. Yeah. And elder and elderly are two different things. Elderly is the last five or 10 years of your life. Elder, if you're, as I was when I joined Airbnb at 52 at a company where the average age was 26. I mean, elder is a relative term. <laughs> so I was an elder for sure. So I decided to double down. I came down here to Baja where I had a home on the beach and I was like, okay, I'm going to write the book here. And the second month I was writing the book, I went for a run down the beach and I just had this, I had this this thought, and it, the thought was this, it was like, why is it that we don't have midlife wisdom schools? A place where a person goes for that midlife pit stop, a place where a person goes to sort of understand how to repurpose themselves in this new era of their life and, and focus on long life learning, the idea of how to live a long life in a better way. So I, having been a hospitality person, having been on the board of the Esalen Institute, which is a very famous, it's the yeah. first personal growth retreat center in the U.S., and, quite famous, been around for 60 years now, uh, almost 60 years. And 
been on that board, taught there for many years. It's like, okay, I've got those two ingredients. And I also now have this point of view and a curriculum that I could I write around the idea of how do we make aging aspirational? How do we help people shift their mindset around aging, et cetera? And so literally in June of 2017, when I was 2017, when I was writing the book, I, ha I had the idea. So basically three years ago, by January, we started the beta program. My book came actually wow. Yeah, my book. Yes, we started the beta program because my book didn't come out till September of 2018. So you know, there's always a delay. Delay. I'd finished it by the time the EMEA, the Modern Elder Academy, had opened was opening, and we had a six month beta period from January to June 2018, and then we opened to the public in November 2018. And we've had 750 people go through the program. It's a social enterprise, so I make no salary. Built a four or five, four to five acre campus here by myself with no rent. You know, pay, pay myself no rent because I wanted to give back because I did have friends who committed suicide during the Great Recession. I was like, we got to figure out how to solve this mm. midlife crisis and turn it into a calling. And so that's how I got started. We've had, and so 62% of the people we, well, not that many now, 55% of the people who have come to the program have been on some kind of scholarship we've given them. So it's a really diverse, we have firemen and physical therapists along with you know, retired investment bankers who are 45 years old and CEO of tech companies. Um, so it's really interesting. The cohorts are about 18 people and I, we've learned that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So we create with great questions and, and that great ability to create a seven-day arc of learning, um, the ability for people to have a transformational experience. And we use NPS, you know, NPS probably, uh, do you know NPS net promoter score, mm -hmm. Shelley? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a customer satisfaction me metric and you scored like a 95 NPS, which is the 99th percentile. Which is unheard of. <laughs> unheard of, exactly. So we've, we're doing something right. And our goal is to be a catalyst for other midlife wisdom schools with different names than Modern Elder Academy uh, or MEA to open. And yes, we're going to have you down here. And someday you and I will teach down here together. We'll have you come in as a student first. Yes. And then we'll have you, you, you will co-lead in the future. And so it's a, we're an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. So, so people have said like, why, are, why don't you do this like in Napa Valley? And maybe we will someday because I mean, there's a lot of logic in that. But one of the things, I had a home here on the beach. So, that, that, so the idea came and I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's try it here. But actually, it's turned out pretty interestingly because, you know, we've had people from 24 countries come through here and, and we have had lots of Mexicans come through here because we're in Mexico. But the truth is that 85% of our people who come are from either the US or Canada. Hmm. And flying into another country, albeit it's a two hour flight from Los Angeles, so it's not that far for some people, but flying into a foreign place puts you in a liminal state. Yeah. It actually says, oh, this is a little different. I, I, I didn't just drive here and commute here, and, and I'm, I'm in a place where I feel like I'm a little in transition. And we're reopening in October, and we're going to have all kinds of great public health things in place so everybody feels comfortable with what we're doing. The good news is in this environment here, it, we can have classes outside in, in shaded areas and things like that. So you don't have to be inside a lot. And that's a nice thing because COVID really preys on people being inside. Yeah, yeah. So long story short is it's been a, a, just an amazing journey. And I, it's sort of my new calling and I feel really committed to it. I love how you you disrupt, reinvent, disrupt, reinvent, or you say reintention versus reinvention, don't you? Did I pick that up from somewhere? Yeah, I have a I, reinvention sounds harder than reintention or repurposing. Yeah. Because actually I, I believe same seed, different soil. You have mastery inside of you. And the question is, how do you repurpose it in new ways? 
as opposed to feeling like, oh, I have to learn how to become a software engineer in my mid-50s because that's the reinvention I need to do in, in the tech world. No, you, have, you don't have to become a software d- developer. You're, you already have soft skills that you've developed. And those soft skills you could actually elevate in a way that actually in a new way in terms of how you show up in the workplace. There was a great article by Arthur Brooks in the Atlantic Magazine last June that's titled, Your Professional Decline is Happening Much Sooner Than You Think. And it was a depressing article for the first two-thirds of it because it really was speaking to the idea of the world not wanting older people anymore, and older people meaning 45 and older. And the last third of the article was really interesting. What it showed was that actually as we get older, we get better at connecting the dots. We're better at strategic thinking, holistic thinking, um, crystallized intelligence, better at emotional intelligence, better at a bunch of things. And there are a lot of ways you can reformulate your career, repurpose it in ways that actually leverage those things that you get better at as you get older. Uh, You know, Shelly, I mean, frankly, being a coach, I don't want a 22-year-old coach. I I wouldn't mind a 72-year-old coach. The life experience and the seasoning has some value, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. So I want to, okay, I want to dig into the Modern Elder Academy, but I want to just reinforce one thing you said, that this is a social enterprise. And I heard you say somewhere, and I actually wrote this down, maybe it was when you were talking to Tim Ferriss, you Mm. said, and this might be somebody else's quote, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Yeah, it's not my quote, but I say it a lot. And it's it's been attributed to Socrates and a bunch of other people. No one person owns it. So I can say it more and more because no one's going to sue me. But it makes makes sense. The meaning of life is to find your gift. Okay, what that means is like, ah, I'm on this planet. I'm different than everyone else. Trying to find the thing that is my talent to offer the world. And it doesn't have to be in your career. It could be like being a great grandparent or being you know, a marathon runner or a political activist, whatever it is. Finding that the meaning is to find the gift and then the purpose is to give it away. And the per- that, that second piece is the really yes. interesting part because that's when it speaks to the idea of generativity, which is a word that was coined by Eric Erickson, developmental psychologist. He said, I am what survives me. And that's what generativity is. It's to actually to give it away. And, and that's what really coaching and mentoring and all of this is about. Yeah. And I just, I love that that's the foundation of like, oh, okay. It feels to me part of the spirit of a modern elder. When I think about it is like that giving it away. So, okay. Modern Elder Academy, a couple of questions. One is, I'm so curious since you've started this, what's the age range of people that you (laughs) see showing up for the Modern Elder Academy? Originally, we had brackets on it. And it was, you could only be 45 to 65. 45 to 65. That was what we considered the age range for a modern elder. What we learned quickly is that 25% of our applicants were outside that age range. Wow. We've had, we've had people from 30 to 88. The average age is 54. So we were right in terms of 45 to 65. Is, 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 but we've had people as young as 30. We have an Instagram star who's famous who actually needed to get rid of the identity of being a narcissist around his Instagram livelihood, and he wanted to repurpose himself. So we've got about 7% of our people have been in their 30s, 7%. And then we have people, we had an 88-year-old woman. We've only had one person in their 80s, and she happened to be 88. And she was amazing. Oh, my God. So usually someone in their 80s is going to be a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit more frail. And so we're a little cautious because we don't have ADA in, you know, American yeah. Disability Act in, in Mexico. And we're in a rural area. And, but she was great. And, and um, we had a lot of people in their 70s. And we have a lot, because frankly, there's a growing number of people by choice or necessity who are going to work, you know, frankly, until their 80s. Yeah. 
Well, doing what fulfills them, right? Because I believe that's mm-hmm. part of like, a, you know, aspirational aging, as you call it, is like, yeah. how do we make this deep and meaningful and fulfilling to pick right. up on those on those themes? And so I'm curious, I have in front of me, I showed you this before we started recording, but I rarely print stuff out. Yeah, and yes. I went to the Modern, uh, Modern Elder Academy, um, like seasonal workshop calendar, because yes, you yes. and I talked about me getting yeah. down there in October, which I'm still hell bent on doing. I started looking at this thing and I'm like, I have got to print this out. And it's been sitting next to my computer and I stare at it and I'm like, and I said to you, I want to go to every single one of these things because what I want to highlight for everybody is like the quality of this Mm. content is incredible. You've got, I mean, not only are you a teacher, you've got Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's, You've got Lynn Twist, the author of one of my favorite books of all time, The Soul of Money. You've got the most incredible... Paul Hawken, he's a a rebel. You know, he wrote the book Growing a Business long ago. It was was my Bible when I started my business when I was 26. Yeah, we're really proud. Mark Nepo, famous poet. What's been fascinating is how people have been drawn to this place. And it's not just the, the students who are coming to, but the teachers, yeah. because there is, there's not a place like this. There's not a, there are lots of personal growth retreat centers around the world, but there's not one that has a curriculum that's specific to midlife and beyond. And that's really focused on how do you shift your, your, your wisdom and your mindset around aging. So I, I'm excited and I'm excited because the quality of what we're offering feels like it's important to the world. You know, one of the questions that we all need to ask ourselves, both individually and if you are in a company, like if you, when you're at Harley, let's say, Shelley, is if we didn't exist as a company or if I didn't exist as a person, who would care? Yeah. I, I once asked that question to the senior leaders at, at Gap, Inc. It was at a time when Gap, Inc. was in decline. It was like they didn't know what to say. Because in many ways, it had become a commodity. Harley represents something. And there was a, there's the why there. And, and therefore, you can answer that one. And you, hopefully, Shelley, felt like if you didn't exist, it would, you know, it would be noticeable. One of my favorite movies of all time is you know, It's a Wonderful Life. And Jimmy Stewart and you know, Clarence the Angel takes him to what Potterville would look like, you know, the, the town he was living in, if Jimmy Stewart never, George Bailey never existed. So there's even a psychological thing called the, the George Bailey effect, which is what when you help someone see what the world would be like if you didn't exist or if you're an entrepreneur, if your company maybe didn't exist. So I believe strongly that MEA is 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 poised to become that kind of that kind of thing that Esalen was, frankly, 60 years ago when it helped to create the personal growth retreat movement and the personal growth development movement. I love it because I said, when I wrote my book, I say in the beginning, I know my book's waiting for you in San Francisco too. So I can't wait for you to, can't wait for you to read it. But I say in the introduction, it's like, I wanted somebody to put an arm around me when I left Harley and I was going into the scary unknown and I was about to go on the heroine's journey. And I was like, I just wanted somebody to put an arm around me and say, I got you. And so that's how I wrote my book. I said, this is me sitting with you saying, I got you on this journey. And that's what I feel like the Modern Elder Academy is too. It's like, I got you in this state of liminality and this crazy transition that none of us have trained for. I got you. Is that how you think about it? No one's put it so eloquent. Thank you, Mm, Shelly. Yeah, I got you. That is really what it is. And the part that's really interesting is... It's more, it's not even I got you, it's we got you. Yes. Um, we got you is this collection. I mean, there's, 
right behind me is that's, you know, cohorts that have been here. We've had 50 cohorts. So cool. Each one with their own name, each with, with their own photo on the wall. These cohorts stay in touch. Some of them, like more than two years later, they have a Zoom call every week. They, uh, and so it's that emotional insurance or what I call social wellness. Uh, illness starts with the letter I. Wellness starts with the letter we or the, with, the, with the letter Z. Boom. Yeah. And the premise of, of wellness that we've had in, in American society has been very much your personal endeavor to be well. And yet so much of wellness comes from your social connection to the people who surround you. And so I think, you know, and this is why loneliness is in many ways rampant because we get so focused on the personal side of, of our lives and social media doesn't necessarily help it at, at all. And so long story short is, uh, you know, the idea that we got you, yeah. you're not alone. You're going through something that other people are going through. That person sitting next to you may be going through a transition that's a divorce and you may actually have gotten laid off in your job. You have two different transitions, but you have a lot to share with each other about how to get to the other side of it. Yeah, that and that's that community piece, like the three-legged stool that you talked about earlier, purpose, wellness, and community. Yes. That community piece is so powerful. I have literally, that's been at the center of my experience in sabbaticals, like finding my tribe, finding people yeah. who are going through similar things, who can be with me, who can challenge me, who can inspire me. And so that's another piece of what you're really creating yeah. because you do a lot of stuff with alums too, don't you? Oh, our alum community is exceptionally active. Yeah, I love that. That's how we met. We met through an alum who, oh, who I worked. Right. Toby was an alum. I Toby, worked with him yes. 20 years ago at AOL, which is just such yeah. a beautiful way of like bringing all these. these no, our, our alums, it's a community. It's, a, it's actually, frankly, even on the way to becoming a movement. So that's the part that's interesting as well. So is that what you think is kind of next on the horizon? I is have like, no idea. Yeah. I think a, a movement actually you can't you might be able to predict it, but you can't control it. A yeah. movement sort of has its own, you know, way of democratically coming from bubbling up. And, you know, I, I, I see evidence of it in all kinds of ways. We'll see. The community you can create. I'm, I, I've spent a lot of years cultivating community and I, I have the, a good sense of what are the ingredients. And so that's why our alum community is so solid and connected. I love it. And I say I'm on a mission to liberate a billion souls. And yet I know I can't do that on my own. So right. then it's one person, it's one soul at a time, impacting another, impacting another, and all right. of us being this light in the world. Yeah. And that's what I see with modern elders as well, which yeah. is so powerful. And I just want to say, I love that you're living it too. Like you live curiosity. I read that you learn surfing and Spanish, Spanish and probably right God, God knows what else. Like, yeah. In your 50s, in the Late 50s. Business. I'm learning it now. I mean, I, That's yeah. That's so cool. It is. You know, maybe I'll finish by just talking about Peter Drucker. He's my hero. Yeah. Peter Drucker is, you know, every two years, this guy wrote two-thirds of his 40 books after the age of 65. And every two years, he would study a subject that he didn't know a thing about, that he was just curious about and maybe passionate about. And then he'd become one of the world's leading experts in it. That kind of thing led him to living till his mid-90s and led him to being probably the best known management theorist and business thinker in history. So, uh, you know, I I'll just try to be like Peter. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. And for everybody who's listening, like pick up wisdom at work, making of a modern elder. It's a brilliant read. I think Chip, you've got this unique talent. You you described yourself the first time we met as like an academic white paper geek. Yeah. And what I thought was fascinating is as I was reading wisdom at work, I was like, oh, I kind of get it because you've got the research and the data points and all of that that make this a really powerful story. And yet yeah. I feel like it's being told to me by a trusted and soulful friend. And that mashup is powerful. So I loved your writing. I encourage everybody to check it out. And I have become a recent subscriber of your Wisdom Well blog. Yes. <laughs> you are. You're a wealth of wisdom. Seriously. I think it's... Thanks. It, oh. I feel really, you know, I, it, I feel lucky to be in this stage in my life. I really do. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I want to give back. So... Yeah, I, I feel the same. Shelly, thank you. Thank I know you for this what has been doing. awesome. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that, you know, we kind of understand where each other are coming from and what you're yeah. doing inspires me. And I can't wait to see what um, kind of explodes from this point forward and what we can co-create and collaborate on in the future. So yeah. one last thing, I'm not going to go through my final questions. I've kept yes. you for so long. How can people find you? People can find me. I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so feel free to find me there. That's, I would say in social media, that's the place I'm most found. We also do have a, a Modern Elder Academy private group. Just as, answer two or three questions, and we have 3,000 people in that group, which is a really active group of not just alums, but all kinds of people. I am on the Modern Elder Academy website, or chipconley.com, and Wisdom Well is located on the Modern Elder Academy website as well. I love it. So everybody check out. This has been so fun. It was like a continuation of our first conversation and I cannot wait to have more. So yes. thanks for joining me, Chip. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shelly. All right. Take care. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow Rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylvatical.com and follow me at sylvatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?